Okay, good evening everyone. Good evening. We are live August 9th, is it? 8th, 9th? August 8th. We have a very small brief quote that actually has great meaning. Special in that for such a small quote, it packs a whole bunch of meaning. So this is from a fairly famous sutta, one that is talked about. And one of the things that's very famous about it actually is only tangentially related. It's the fact that this sutta marks the moment when Sariputta became an arahat. So it's um, kind of, you could say, it's a testament to the greatness of the sutta. But uh, this was the sutta that led the wisest person in the world besides the Buddha, wisest person in the history of mankind, humankind besides the Buddha, to become an arahat, to become enlightened. So right after the, actually right after this quote, there's this quote, and then it says, "Dena ko ayasma sariputo." At that time, at that very moment, the venerable Sariputta was standing behind the Bhagava, the Blessed One, the Bhagavantang Bijayamano, was fanning the Blessed One. And he says, let's read it in English. Then he thought to himself, the Blessed One indeed speaks to us of the abandoning of these things through direct knowledge. Realized that the Buddha had, Buddha was speaking out of direct knowledge. Indeed, the Sublime One indeed speaks to us of the relinquishing of these things through direct knowledge. So it's not talking theoretically. And Sariputta examines them through practice. All the things that were discussed in the sutta. And he gets it. He gets it in a way that's you know, not, um, not open for the, mo the, major the majority of us. Certainly not Diganaka, the Sariputta's nephew. But Diganaka became a Sotapanna as a result. Wait, just a second. Um, yeah. Not sure if he becomes a Sotapanna or an Arahant. Wonder Diganaka saw the Dhamma, attained the Dhamma, understood the Dhamma. Crossed beyond doubt. Yeah, I think he just became a Sotapanna. And because he's still a lay person, right? Anyway, so it's a great sutta. Um, just a second. Our neighbors have gotten 
enthusiastic about their music. So the Buddha says a bhikkhu whose mind is thus liberated. He's, I think he's changing it a bit in the version that's on the website. It just says one whose mind is free, but he's referring to a specific tag, a specific quote of the previous paragraph. But it's basically what he means as a bhikkhu whose mind is liberated, sides with none and disputes with none, employs the speech currently used in the world without adhering to it, conventional speech. What this means, this refers to um, mainly, in the main, refers to the idea of self and I, and to uh, ideas surrounding identity and belief for example like the buddha might say i believe this or not he wouldn't say it exactly like that but say this my my view is this when in fact he has no idea that he has no sense that it is i that hold this view or something but it's just a manner of speaking because you have to explain what uh, the state of your mind is and so in order to refer to that you say my mind you say i and so on but these are all conventions So the sutta begins talking about something a little bit unrelated. But a lot of these suttas, it's so much, um, so great to read the suttas because of the the flavor behind them. It's not just dry teachings that you get if you read a book like What is Buddhism? Right? If you read an intro, intro to Buddhism, you don't get this. You don't get what you get from what are basically stories, just the most profound stories in existence. So the Blessed One was staying in Rajagaha in the Boar's Cave, which will be one of the caves on Vulture's Peak. You can still go up Vulture's Peak today, and every day many, many, many people go up to pay respect to the place where the Buddha uh, first started, really started the spreading the religion. After he taught the five uh, ascetics, he immediately came back to Rajaga. Well, immediately he did a couple of things along the way, but he headed straight here and eventually took up residence at Vulture's Peak, or initially took up residence at Vulture's Peak and eventually moved down to uh, Wailuana, the bamboo grove, which was given by the king of Rajaga at the time. So anyway, at this time he was up on the mountain of Vulture's Peak. Not sure when this was. This would have been early on, no? Maybe the first year. And so Diganaka, who is Sariputta's nephew, Sariputta's fanning, Sariputta is still not Narahant, so it's quite early on. And he's fanning... Dikana, uh, Buddha's fanning the Buddha. And Dikana comes up and says something a little bit, or he's, he's somewhat um, ornery or um, Ill, it seems like he's ill-mannered in a way. He comes up and he just shouts out his view to the Buddha, which is common of, of uh, people in the world. It's common to have this this uh, need 
uh, or this this exuberance in your views i believe this and you want to tell everyone you want to you have this sense that you're right and that you've figured it all out my uh my stepmother i was talking on the phone with my stepmother recently and she was concerned i shouldn't name names should i there was someone who was concerned about someone else who was following a religious teacher and uh, they came to me they just mentioned it it wasn't a big thing we were just talking about this and the interesting idea of following a religious teacher and uh, it was interesting for me because um it was sort of a um, a attack on the idea of uh, someone having a religious path or a path that they claim leads to enlightenment. And it, when, when someone you know gets involved in a a following, a cult or a religion, you know, that claims to have the answers, um, it, it can be quite worrisome for one's friends and relatives because. You, as an outsider, you can't verify the truth of the, the things that are being taught and the, the veracity, the sincerity, the goodness of it. But all you know is that this person has, has dedicated themselves, often on a very intense level. And so I, my answer was, that you have that a, a true religious teaching will be universal. It won't be hard to spot the difference at, at any moment where you think you hear that this has become, um, you, you hear something that makes you makes it clear that this has become specific. Like there's a teaching that that has now veered away from what is universally applicable. So suddenly you have to do certain rituals. And those rituals, there's no inherent, they, they don't have anything to do with inherently with reality. They're, they become specific. Like you say, must you must believe in this guru or this teacher or this god. You know, you must wear this type of clothes or you must this or you must that. Then uh, there's a sense that mm, you've, you've got, um, you've got potentially a cult, some, something that is potentially misguided. When the focus is placed on rites and rituals, the meaning of rites and rituals are things that are specific, that aren't universal. Like take, for example, monks. We wear robes. I just mentioned the idea of you have to wear a specific type of clothes. So people often take this to mean something, that the robes have some meaning, and they see I've got this color robe, and if you look in the back there, he's got a different color robe, and my teacher has same color robe as me, but why do they have different colors of robes? See, um, does this mean something? So is there some meaning behind it? So they have the idea that the robe is some uniform or so on, when in fact all of, all of a Buddhist monk's robe is originally was as a means of getting rid of um, any kind of a symbolism or a meaning behind clothing so taking away the beauty of it the form of it the the texture or whatever and making it just a a square rectangular piece of cloth because that's all this is it's a rectangle and then more than a rectangle it's it's cut up into pieces so so because otherwise it would be more valuable it's to make it actually really really poor piece of cloth and then you 
put the piece of recta rectangle piece of cloth on. So I mean, for monks, there are these certain you know have to wear this kind of have to wear something that's just a rectangle, for example. But um, the, the 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 clear lesson from Buddhism is that truth has to be universal. It can't be specific. So when when you when a cult starts to impose rules on its followers like you must do this you must do that then uh, or specific practices when it starts to get weird right that's how you tell the difference because this person was was you know by, by all appearances was involved in good things was had become a kinder person was more uh, compassionate and was always talking about doing good things and i said well in, you know and it's just about goodness and and happiness and peace and things that are universally appealing and clearly in a good way then there's to that extent there's nothing to be worried about anyway problem is when you have views and you fall into what is going to be discussed in the sutta so agivesana comes sorry dikana comes to buddha and he he expresses his view uh, nothing is acceptable to me and the commentary takes it as a form of nihilism, which I guess it is. It means not nothing. It's a fairly safe, it's a seemingly safe uh, position, and that's what he thinks. He thinks he's got it, because if nothing is acceptable to him, if he doesn't uh, agree with anything, you know, no matter what statement or view is put forth, he doesn't agree with it, he doesn't hold to it, he will not accept it. If he rejects everything, rejects birth, rejects old age, sickness, death, rejects heaven, rejects hell, rejects the Buddha, reject everything, then you, you, you can never be defeated, is the idea. The Buddha defeats him with one sentence. The Buddha asks him a question in response. He says, so this view of yours, Agivesana, as he calls him Agivesana after his family, this view of yours, nothing is acceptable to me. Is not at least that view acceptable to you? And he's crushed. No, it was really that easy. But then he says, if this view of what he tries to make up for, he says, if this view of mine were acceptable to me, Master Gotama, it too would be the same. It too would be the same. So he, I don't know exactly what the poly is, but, but he equivocates which is a common thing to do when you're flustered. And he goes on, the Buddha goes on to say that, we point out something that's very important, and it's that when you take a view, any view, you automatically set yourself up to opposition with those who, who take the opposite view, who, who, who disagree with your view. <clears throat> so he said there's three types of people. Some people say everything is acceptable to me. They accept everything. Some people say um, some things are acceptable to me and some things are not. And some people say nothing is acceptable to me and nothing is, and, and everything is not. And as a result, they fight. They will argue amongst each other. Amongst each other. And he goes on and on. I'm not going to read the whole sutta. But then he gets into... He, he shows the difference between Buddhism and most other religious or spiritual paths. 
there's none of that here. There's none of that holding on. A holding onto a view is not the way of Buddhism. Buddhism is explaining, uh, explaining and um, pointing out the facts, the facts that are indisputable. What are the facts that are indisputable? There is there is the body and there is the mind. There are three kinds of feelings. There, uh, a feeling is impermanent, condition, dependently arisen, subject to destruction, vanishing, fading away, and ceasing. Same with painful feeling, same with neutral feeling. Pointing out things that actually when you hear them seem kind of meaningless, pointless. If you didn't understand, you didn't take it in the context of a meditation practice, you'd think, well, feeling exists. Feeling is impermanent. Well, yeah. But you don't. If you, you, but the problem is you don't understand the ramifications of that statement. That actually that rem, that statement has quite far-reaching ramifications. If feeling is impermanent, it blows the whole our our whole um, reality out of the water, and it shows us as the hypocrites that we are, or the not hypocrites, but shows that we're on the wrong path. It points out how wrong the path we're on is, which. On some level, most of us know. Most of us know that we're not going to be satisfied by the things that we chase after. We can't help ourselves. We still are attracted to the desirable things, even though we know they are not going to satisfy us. So this isn't an intellectual teaching, and that's what gets Sariputta in the end. He says, wait a second, you know, this, this is it. It's not an intellectual teaching. And he, he sees it. He, he watches the Vedana arising and ceasing, and he gets it. And when you get it on that level, then you you wake up and you really see, I'm a fool. I'm doing. I'm approaching reality from the entirely wrong uh, frame of mind. I'm, I, I have the totally wrong idea about reality. Completely wrong view. And so that's what changes, and you no longer chase after something that is impermanent, suffering, and non-self. You really see. So it's not in you. You can't say yes, yes. It's feeling is impermanent. I felt this, and now it's gone. That's not what it means. That's a very coarse and and unrefined uh, realization. The the subtle and refined ones are momentary, moment by moment by moment, experiencing the three characteristics. the difference between the reality of concepts and the reality of, of experiences. Our, these concepts are our views, our opinions, our beliefs, our ideas. So you have this concept of a feeling as being impermanent. Or you have the concept of the body as being impermanent. The concept of a person as being impermanent. You know, like, hey, my arm is non-self because it um I, I can't make it move when I want it to, right? I have to send the trigger and then it moves, right? And actually it's just a reflex, it's not really self. So we have this concept of it being self or not self. Yeah, the arm is self because look at I can I can flex my arm. I'm doing that. That's me. This is where concepts get you, where conventional reality gets you. Someone asks you, Can you can you give me a hand? Well, yes. Sure, I can give you a hand. So you have the idea that I can do something. But in ultimate reality, if someone asks you, can you give me a hand? You say, there's no I to give, you, to give you a hand. There's no I, there's no you, there's no hand. So I'm sorry, that's 
I'm sorry. It's impossible. Which is why we have to use conventional language. If someone asks you to give them a hand, you have to say, yes, I can give you a hand. You can't say there is no I, there is no you, and there is no hand. It's conventional reality, and we use it without clinging to it. But we also understand the other reality, and in meditation that's what we deal with, moment by moment. All of your problems can be broken down, all of your suffering, all of the trials and tribulations, all of the worries and cares that we have can be broken down into moment by moment experience that can then be understood. And when it's understood, then it can be put back together in a new way. The reactions change as you have the clarity to see proper and improper reactions. Seeing impermanent suffering, seeing that nothing is worth clinging to, worth clinging to. Not pleasant feelings, not painful feelings, not neutral feelings. They are all impermanent, conditioned, dependently arisen, subject to destruction, vanishing, fading away, and, and ceasing. So that's Majima Nikaya 74, definitely worth reading. I encourage everyone to take the time to read that sutta and the whole of the Majima Nikaya if you have the time. But I think that's as far as we'll go tonight. Did you lose the live stream out there? That'd be funny. Mm. Yeah, it went off. Why did it go off? Sorry about that. Somehow the phone disconnected. <laughs> to keep up with that. How much how much did we lose? How much of the live stream how much of the audio did we lose? Did it just go off just then? Robin says one minute ago. Was it to just lose it because we just finished, so that's just good timing. Awesome. Okay. So that'll be recorded and this will be recorded as another file. It records as soon as it stops. Uh, anyway, so welcome everyone. Anyone have any questions for tonight, or let's give a relatively long exposition there. I mean, compared to the other days. But if people got questions, I'm here for here for you. It's awesome to see we've got a huge group. How many meditators here is this? One, two, three, four, five, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. Twenty-one on the list. Two people currently meditating. Thirty-two viewers on YouTube, which is good, you know, for 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 a daily stream. To, to come here daily, 32 people is awesome. But it's great is that this is all recorded and it's going to be up on YouTube for years to come. 
Okay, so here we have a question. Generally, I can tell the difference between an intentional thought, like my labeling rising, falling, and the other thoughts, which seem to arise by themselves. Is there a quality difference between these and the clear thought? Yeah, intentional thought um, isn't the same as clear thought. In fact, intentional thought is more complicated than you think. It's not exactly intentional. It's, it, it is mind-based, um, but what do you mean by intentional? Because how, where can you recognize the moment where you intended to do it? It can often just mean forceful thought. You know, what is the, I'm going to think X? Is that what happened? No. Thoughts can come from a variety of sources. So it's probably much more just a focused thought or a directed thought. Right? Intention, and I guess you could say somewhat mindful, but it's only in a, um, it's only in a conventional sense that you're aware of what you're doing. You're, you have a clarity of purpose as opposed to a, a distracted thought. At least there's definitely, that's some thought where you have the potential to be mindful. But intentional thought isn't the same as clear thought. A clear thought is of the experience, when you recognize the experience as it is. So the intention to say rising is a technique, but the result of that, uh, the seeing it as it is, is the clear thought. So sorry, I guess I'm just stuck on the word intentional, but if you mean your labeling of rising and your label of falling, um, the true labeling, true awareness that this is rising and this is falling, that is the clear thought for sure. Are you sure to recognize it when it happens? Yeah, sure. When you have a clear thought, yeah. I mean, you should be having them, having lots of them. Hopefully it's not just one. The moment when you say rising, you say falling, when you do it correctly, once you understand and, and really feel it, then a, a moment of rising is just, it's freedom. I mean, I guess it's, you could say it's on a matter of degrees because all it takes is one moment. If you say rising and you know clearly this is rising, the next moment can be nibbana. Like this teacher, I would say, said, hearing, hearing, boom, he was gone because he was explaining it to someone, but he was also doing it himself. So he's saying hearing, and, and then he became aware of his own voice, I, I'm assuming, <laughs> and entered into cessation while he was teaching. Is it cheating to meditate while listening to your talks? No, no, that's meditating while listening to a talk is great. It's not a substitute exactly for intensive practice, but certainly how you should be listening to a talk. You should be mindful and meditative. Where should one's mind go when angered or frustrated by a situation? Go to the anger and the frustration. Ideally, you know, if it's overwhelming, 
you can try with um, you can try with metta with love if you're angered or frustrated you can wish for happiness may there be well-being may things be sorted out may problems be resolved may all beings be happy that can help but ultimately just be mindful of the anger don't worry about it don't be concerned about it just focus on it and see it clearly focus on it doesn't mean we think of focus in that sense as being really push your mind onto it but that's not what it means focus means means like the lens like see this camera right it's focused on the finger doesn't mean it's somehow intense it means it's perfect on the finger and now it's focused on see when it focuses on me then it's in focus that's what it means focus on the have clarity about the anger was sariputta an sariputta an anagami before becoming an arahant yeah it ended with sariputta becoming an arahant and diganaka his nephew becoming a sotapanna sariputta was i believe a sotapanna at the time he had become a sotapanna He had become a Sotapanna upon hearing um, Asaji say, Ye Dhamma Hetu Babawa, Te Sang Dhammang Tathagata Ahu, Tathagato Tathagata Tathagato Ahu. Half of a verse. If I remember correctly, it took Sariputta half of the verse, and it took Moggallana the whole verse think and but then it took Sariputta two weeks to become an arahat and it only took Moggallana one week this is because Sariputta had a, had a higher attainment in mind he wished to become the chief in wisdom chief disciple in regards to wisdom so he wished, wished to become hugely wise so it was a harder thing to do Moggallana just wish to have great magical powers during sitting meditation I occasionally feel like giggling I say happy 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 when it arises but it seems to me a strange thing this bubbly giggle urge something about it is a little disturbing but I haven't nailed down what's disturbing about it is it common to have these wellings up yeah we consider that to be related to rapture, piti, what we call. I mean, rapture is probably not the right word, but it's the closest. It's what we've always used because it's the closest in a Christian sense. They have the rapture. If you've ever seen those people who just suddenly go into some uh, trance state, it's a form. That's a, so the Christian one is a form of what we call piti. So that so we still use the word rapture, but it's like this charged state, and the bubbling up is a part of that. Um, concentration is like water; you pour the water into the cup. So you need concentration, just like you need, just like putting water in the cup. You need to be full. But when when the, the concentration becomes overfull, then there's a bubbling over, and it's a like the water in the cup overflowing. So when your state of mind overflows, it's not a bad thing. It's just it sometimes overflows and gives rise to laughter, gives rise to crying. Some people will cry. 
even though they're not unhappy. Um, some people will yawn uh, again and again. There's uh, often the shaking back and forth, rocking. You'll always get, if you have a big group of meditators, you'll always see one or two of them going like this. And they don't realize they're doing it or they're not clearly aware of it. Or they're not, they're not aware of the intention to create it. They think somehow that it's happening on its own. Lots of different ways that it can arise. But yeah, say happy, happy. You can just tell it to stop sometimes, all of these things, any kind of rapturous state, because there's a sub subliminal sort of uh, very faint kind of imp uh, instigation. The mind is instigating it, even though you don't realize that you're, you're instigating it. The shaking one is obvious because people will be in pain, and it starts from pain, and it, you know, there's a little bit of shifting at first. Then you get used to shifting, and it triggers this because as long as you're shifting and then suddenly you don't feel the pain anymore and so it creates that and so there's underneath that there is the move the intention to move and so when you say stop it it changes that just tell yourself to stop wellings up are often solved in that way What would you do if two experiences seem to come at you at the same time with the same strength? You pick one. Don't worry about it. It's not a big deal. We have someone with a yellow name. Uh-oh. Are we going to allow the yellow namers to ask questions? Of course, no problem. In your book, you espouse, and other teachers I have also I have also espoused watching the breath at a certain point in the meditation, e.g., e. the belly or nose. Hum hum hum. What is the significance between the two methods? Is one better than the other? The belly or the nose? Right. Well, Ajahn Brahm teaches at the end. There's a huge group of them the, the, the people who teach anapanasati which is mindfulness of the breath they will have you focus at the nose because you're you, you maybe it's very subtle there and refined it's conducive to calm uh, meditation at the stomach isn't conducive to calm why because the stomach isn't the breath the stomach is the body it's the same as lifting your arm and being mindful of that or moving the, the, the legs and being mindful of that. It's a um, bodily sensation of tension. And tension is not the breath. Tension is the air element. But the air element is present when you flex your arm and you have that pressure, right? The feeling of pressure. Or when you clench your fist, the feeling of pressure, that's the air element. Even though there's, I'm not, my, my hand isn't breathing. But that pressure, when you clench your jaw, that's that's the air element, the pressure. When you feel that pressure, tension in the head, that's the air element. So that this is the same, it's physical. It just happens to be related to the breath, and, and that's useful because you're always breathing, right? Which is why the breath meditation is so common, but the, it's only the, the because of the same, it's only the same reason, it's not the same practice. The reason um, is that the breath is 
so uh, is is constant the movement of the belly is also constant I mean, because they're based on the same thing but it's not the same meditation this really isn't anapanasati i mean my teacher often says it is but he knows it's not you know, traditionally or it is in a sense but he, it is it's different from actually being mindful of the breath because it's mindfulness of the body and you see even the buddha doing that kind of being vague about what it is but specifically mindfulness at the nose um, can be mindfulness of the body but it usually isn't it's usually directed towards attaining states of tranquility that can only be gotten by focusing on a concept because the breath is actually a concept you don't experience the breath you experience the body you experience physical sensations like heat and cold or pressure slight pressure here the intermittent pressure on the lip very light you know. but it's so light that it's difficult to maintain and it if you were wanting to practice vipassana so it much more often leads to much much more likely leads to samatha it's very useful for the practice of samatha yes welcome you're welcome here this isn't really a you know it's not a really private group we would like people to come here to meditate we don't want it to be totally open to the public so if you've logged in the idea really if you're logging in it should be with the purpose of meditation meditating i guess some people are just logging in to say hello or ask questions but that was sort of the point of moving to this so that we just get people who are serious because that's what we're here for Uh, so watching the entire breath versus watching at a certain point is one better. There are different techniques. I mean, as I said, neither neither one is really what we do. We're practicing mindful of the, mindfulness of the body. So if you're watching the breath, you could be you could be following the breath, but it's still conceptual. There's nothing moving in and out. That's not how you experience it. Your experience is at a point, wherever that point is. So it's really the difference between practicing samatha or vipassana. Is it a big deal if you cannot breathe through your nose? No. No. Your mouth gets dry if you breathe through your mouth, I think. You just swallow and whatever. It's not a big deal. Can it be harmful to constantly listen to some sort of audio when meditating instead of complete silence? Most likely, if you're referring to music or something that you feel is augmenting your practice, then it becomes a crutch. I mean, if it's music, then it becomes a hindrance, as the desire uh, leads to greater clinging. But it's not, not that big of a deal. It's just somewhat counterproductive. And does go against the teachings but if you put on nature sounds nature sounds might work nature sound nature is interesting because it triggers sort of a a state of of um, familiarity in us when we go off into the forest it's not because the forest is beautiful exactly because the forest is 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 comfortable because so many lifetimes before the advent of society every every lifetime 
would have been born, lived in the forest again and again and again. So it's become a very big part of our psyche. So going, so even just hearing the sounds, it triggers something that puts our mind back in the right frame of mind. So on a preliminary level, on a fun foundational level, it can be useful. I would say, I wouldn't discard the idea of having that nature sounds during your meditation, but it's certainly not something to be depended upon. It shouldn't require such, uh, such music or whatever, or such sounds. You should be able to meditate and, on uh, here, this monastery, you, you hear the noise, I think, but we're right on a fairly uh, main road. And so a lot of the trucks getting onto the freeway will come through here on their way. And so we get a lot of idling motors. And when, before when we were just in the main building, we would we did a meditation course with everyone staying in the main building. And it was very close to the road. And so you get these vroom, 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 shaking the walls, shaking the doors. You get the air brakes squealing. And some people were complaining about it. And I said, look, uh, and I went out, I went out and practiced on the front lawn, right beside the sidewalk, right beside the road, just to show that that's, that shouldn't be something that gets in your way. It really shouldn't. I meditated in, I used to meditate in the airport. I do meditate in the airport when I'm in the airport. Do walking meditation sometimes when I was recently, I don't remember where I was going, but had some delay, so I got up and did walking meditation. Anyway, I think we'll stop there. If you have got more questions, well, should be here tomorrow. Same time, same place. So thanks for tuning in, everyone. Have a good night.